Welcome back to the Dealmakers Podcast Show with serial entrepreneur Alejandro Cremades, best-selling author of The Art of Startup Fundraising and co-founder at Panthera Advisors. In this podcast, we ask our guests about their successful acquisitions and financing rounds. Hey guys, so just a quick overview here on Panthera Advisors, as I think it might be of value to you. So Panthera Advisors exist in order to help founders that are in the process of raising capital or get their company acquired. I actually started the company out of incredible frustration because during my entrepreneurial journey, which involved building, financing, scaling, and exiting companies, I could not find a resource that was founder-friendly and I could not get the type of support that I was seeking. So as a result, I made a ton of mistakes along the way. So if you're looking to raise capital, or you are looking to get your company acquired, or just need some sound financial planning, and you're looking to get the best possible outcome in the shortest period of time, feel free to learn more by visiting us at pantheraadvisors.com, or just reach out directly and shoot me a note at alejandro at pantheraadvisors.com. Alrighty, hello everyone and welcome to the Dealmaker Show. So I'm actually very, very excited today because I have one of, I think it's the very, the very first guest from India the, that, that I'm going to have on the show uh, as well, another foreigner just like myself, and then also supporting small businesses. So I think we, without further ado, Rohit Arora from biz to credit welcome aboard today. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity. So you are originally from India, and you also studied in Delhi. So how was like uh, growing up there for you? Yeah, so I'm originally from India. I still have most of my family in India, uh, and I go there pretty often. So growing up in India was fun. Obviously, India was and still is an emerging country, you know, a lot poorer than U.S., so we had a lot less facilities growing up you know, compared to U.S. and, uh, but I think uh, it was a very good upbringing in terms of, you know, it made you very street smart, it made you a hustler, and also the ability to think through various situations, uh, and also, you know, deal with situations where you don't have a lot of resources. So how do you go and, you know, go through those situations, which I think is a great training to be an entrepreneur. Got it, got it. And, and at what point did you did you kind of like decide or, or told yourself, hey, maybe I, I should go to the U.S. And, and see what's what's going on there? Yeah, so I actually initially went over to Singapore uh, to work with GIC Singapore, which is the, uh, which is the sovereign fund of Singapore. And then this was in 1999 uh, during the dot-com boom. And that's where I got my first flavor of, you know, internet and, you know, entrepreneurship. And I was working actually and I set up the first incubator for Singapore government uh, in Singapore, where we were incubating a lot of startups, helping them with raising money, helping them to do things that they couldn't do on their own in terms of connectivity with the Western world. And three years was a great experience for me. And after that, you know, I said, what next? And so then I moved to New York in uh, 2003. And actually, like any other, you know, immigrant or newly arrived immigrant, I first went to uh, school here. So I went to Columbia University to do my master's program. And uh, and during that period of time, there was a huge noise in the industry about outsourcing the benefits and the challenges. And I got really, really interested in that. And I did uh, some research uh, at Columbia in association with a very um, seasoned and a famous professor. His name was Jeffrey Sachs. 
So me and Jeff actually we co-authored a big paper on global sourcing, and that actually you know uh, helped me to figure out you know uh, how the corporate America works, you know what are their motivations, and you know and then I started working here in Deloitte. Uh, consulting in the strategy practice after I graduated. Uh, so I did that for two, two and a half years. And then I was always wanted to set up my own company after my experience in Singapore. Uh, so then in sometime in early 2008, I, along with my brother, we started Wiz to Credit here in New York. Got it. And you also worked at Goldman Sachs, is that right? Yeah, so I worked very briefly there. So I did my internship at Goldman while being at Columbia and worked there briefly, but I was always very keen to work uh, being an entrepreneur, so that uh, so at that point of time, I decided that I'm not going to go into the financial world world per se in a job, and I think that was a big decision I made, and then I you know just stuck to it. And and you were mentioning that you have always been keen towards the entrepreneurial world. I mean, you know, there's a lot of people that talk about entrepreneurs being born or entrepreneurs, you know, all of a sudden just just getting into it, you know, as a result of certain experiences. So. How was it for you? I mean, do you think you were born with this or is it like at one point you saw stuff around you in your surroundings that really triggered that interest or how was it for you? Yeah, so no, I think that's a very good question and I also think very deeply about it. So in my view, some of the attributes of being an entrepreneur, you are born with that. So whether you can deal with uncertainty, whether you can deal with, you know, lack of resources, whether you have enough self-belief in yourself to go through, even like, you know, ram through a wall. Literally, because entrepreneurship is very tough. At the same point of time, I also feel that to be a successful entrepreneur, you need to have certain training. So, you know, I tried my first business when I was, you know, just getting into graduating out from my high school and into college, and I failed uh, because I didn't have the right training. You know, while I had the right mindset of being an entrepreneur, but I didn't have the right training. Uh, so I think it's a combination of the two, but obviously that mindset is something that you either have it or you don't have it. And that ability to, you know, uh, being focused and not giving up. I think Got that's it. something that you cannot get trained. But there's a lot of other training things that you can do in terms of how to build your networks, how to raise financing, how to, you know, go about creating value out there, how not to chase money. You know, a lot of entrepreneurs make that mistake of trying to chase money where, while, while you should be focused on creating value. So I think those are the things that one learns over time. Okay. Got it. So then. Biz to Credit was born, and uh, you mentioned it was 2008. Is that right? Yeah, just before the financial crisis. So just the perfect time to start a business when the economy is going, you know, on a, on a different direction. So I guess, and we'll get into that. But how did you come up with the with the concept? I mean, what what was the incubation process like for you? Uh, well, I was working at Deloitte. I was very curious to you know, figure out what should I do in terms of my entrepreneurial journey. And at that point of time, you know, I was looking at mortgages. They were very hot. I looked at some of the other, you know, ideas. And then one idea that struck me out living in New York and working in New York was that I used to meet with a lot of small businesses, not just in Manhattan, but Queens, Bronx, Brooklyn. And one of the things that, you know, really stuck to me was that while it was pretty easy to get mortgage, and I'm talking about pre, pre-financial crisis, but it, it was very difficult even at that point of time to get you know, uh, money for small businesses, the people who are running their businesses, who are working so hard. And I went to a lot of banks, asked them that question, and they had, and they didn't have any clear answer to that. So I thought at that point of time, what if, if we set up an online digital marketing platform 
which can actually take care of you know this whole process end to end process now that was pretty early because people had not really thought about going digital everybody thought a website was just to collect some leads and we thought that if we are a lead generator then we don't add any value so the whole i think the the whole idea came through a lot of experience that i gathered by then that what is the value add i'm going to do what is the problem that i'm going to solve and is this problem a pain point or just a fad once we figured out me and my brother that this was a big pain point which is not going any time away then we said we need to double down and we started the business somewhere in like you know uh, i would say march april of 20 of 2008 and uh, you know uh, and for and for first few months we got fabulous response from business owners and then all, all of a sudden september of 2008 you know everything fell apart because the crisis happened well business owners got even more desperate for money all the lenders on our platform just went away and that was a big you know test at that point of time that will we be able to survive or not got it got it and the company you actually built it with your brother like you yeah. were like you were mentioning so i mean that my my last company i built it with my wife so i know that when you're building something with family members i mean for us it worked out but you know i want to hear more you know about you guys and and what that process was for you because when you're building a company with with someone in your family sometimes it's very hard to say things the way they are because you don't want to hurt their feelings so as a result of that you may not become effective or or you may become ineffective really in doing what is right for the business so how has this experience been for you guys of building the business as brothers yeah so i think in our case we were very prepared when we started it we were very mature and we were like and we treated each other as like professionals and i think both of us have their own strengths and weaknesses so we were and we are still very aware about that uh, so i think that was a big reason for our success as a team uh, to this day is that we have a very clear understanding of what we are good at and what we are not good at and then we clearly assign tasks between us and then we don't interfere you know in those tasks with each other and at the same point of time we are always there for each other so i think that was one of the key things the other thing was that you know growing up you know it was sort of now it's like if i look back you know we we always thought about it that okay what will we do you know once we have grown up and one of our ambition was to set up a business together so so we prepared you know for that so we didn't do it on day one you know uh, my brother had set up another business uh, in us before uh, which he did with some of the other you know co-founders so i think we really got prepared before we jumped into it and by the time we jumped into it we had the right attitude and the right temperament and i think the other thing was that we never let our personal issues crop up or 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 affect our business relationship you know actually that's very important got it so how did you decide to divide and conquer in terms of responsibilities yeah so i think uh, my brother is very like you know he's 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 a very good operational guy he's very good in risk management i was pretty good at going and selling stuff telling you know the vision really well uh you know the ability to go and you know force change and things you know so i think that's how we said that okay what are our personality types and what are the things that we can do well and i think that's how we have done it now i think there's a lot more overlap because business has grown uh but we also have more strengths that you know we can play around with uh but in the beginning we, we were very clear about it that okay if there was like you know technology piece if i was managing it with my cto then my brother was not uh, while he was involved but he was not really interfering if 
operational side, if he was doing more stuff, then I was not really stepping into it while I knew everything. So I think we have reached a stage where we know everything that the other guy is doing, but we have our uh, you know roles and responsibilities that we are expected to do. But you know we are also what we say we are running a big, a long you know relay marathon. So so wherever we have to take the baton from each other, we still do that. You know. Got it. And 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 culturally speaking, and then also from a dynamics perspective. The U.S. And, and, and more specifically New York City, where you guys are at and where I'm also at, you know, it's a it's completely different from from India. And, you know, in my experience, completely different from Spain as well. So I guess adapting and launching a business in a different country, different language, different culture, like what were some of the challenges that you guys encountered? Yeah, so I would say it's very different from anywhere else. Having said that, I think a city like Delhi in India teaches you a lot of hustle. Uh, it's not an easy city to live in. Uh, there are a lot of people, you know, there are a lot of, you know, uh, stuff which keeps going on there. And so I think one thing that when we had come to New York, we already knew what hustle is all about, What what's being street smart. So I think in New York, you can do well if you're street smart, you know, kind of a guy. And you have to be aggressive. You have to be, you know, on the edge kind of a guy. I think Delhi is somewhat like that. Delhi is not as professional of a city like New York. It's less business-minded than New York. But it has its own dynamics of hustle, being aggressive kind of, you know, personality as a city. Uh, so I think that was pretty beneficial. I think language uh, coming from India was not a challenge, much of a challenge, you know, for us. Because, uh, you know, in, in India, the business lingua franca is English. So you speak English, you think in English, you get educated in English from your kindergarten. So I think that was pretty easy for us. Uh, there's a big Indian network now here in New York. So I think that was good. I think what, what is very different in New York is the pace, uh, the legal surroundings, and the and the level of professionalism. I think that's like, the, I don't think there's any other city in the world where you have that level of professionalism and that level of, you know, uh, ability for people to do, do good and bad both to you. As it Got is. it. And how, how many people are in India? So we have over 200 people in India and around 75 people in the U.S. But in, in terms of, of the actual citizens, how many citizens are in India right now? Oh, like, uh, like, massive, our, like oh, how many like people? The overall population, you're saying? Yes, population. Oh, oh, yeah, okay, I'm sorry. Yeah, so we are now like more than 1.3 billion people. So that's so, why it teaches you a lot of hustle because places are crowded. You have to just fight for everything, you know? I mean, 1.3 billion people, and that's compared to like the probably around 320 million Americans. So, okay. uh, or, or or so. So, I, I I wanted to ask you here. So, having so many people in India, India growing like crazy. Why yeah. did you guys decide that the U.S. was the place, and more specifically, New York, the place to launch this thing? So, I would say uh, when we had moved there, my brother had moved there in 19 uh, no in 2001. And I moved to U.S. in 2003. At that point of time, India was not growing as fast as it is growing. Having said, we have a business, the same business now in India also, where we are offering same data science, technology platforms to banks and non-banks also there. And I think we have leveraged India tremendously, you know, because the IT, IT talent in India is phenomenal. You know, uh, so we have a lot of our employees in India, we have a lot of our data scientists sitting in India. So I think what are our, our bet always has been that this is becoming a very global world 
and more than countries going global, cities are going global. So today, if I see cities like New York, London, you know, Singapore, Bombay, Delhi, uh, you know, uh, all all the English speaking, you know, cities, you know, more and more, they are actually more of a connected to each other than the countries that they are in. So today, somebody sitting in London is more connected to people in New York or in Singapore or in Bombay than, you know, in their hinterland to today, you know. So I think the, the world has changed so dramatically over the last 20, 25 years. As you see, global cities have become magnets for new job opportunities, business. I would say most of the wealth creation now is happening in bigger cities. So I think that whole bet on being in a big city and being able to do business with other big cities is actually becoming more and more relevant every single day compared to, you know, even 20, 30 years back when country boundaries used to matter more than anything else. Thank you. Right, right. So so what ended up being the business model then for bits to credit So we started as an online originator of, you know, small business customers who were looking for access to credit. And we used to have banks and non-banks at the back end where we used to give them over these customers after some underwriting so that they can do the final underwriting and fund the business. But like any successful business, it needs to evolve over time and needs to be really predict things then being reactive. So one thing we figured out, you know, in, by like 2012, 2013, when the markets were coming back and things were getting back to normal, was that most of the banks and non-banks, and that's true even today, are not ready to offer a digital experience to their business customers. So we said that while we were providing with them with, with a great digital experience upfront, you know, things used to fall apart when they had to go for funding and all that. So we said, what if, if we bring the funding in-house, but we don't want to take it on our balance sheet? But then sometime in late 2013, early 2014, we added a lending arm to our business where we collect money from hedge funds, credit funds, banks now, family offices, pension funds, insurance companies, and we give out that money, you know, based on our risk-rated scoring models. And now in last two years, you know, we have... Uh, put a lot of emphasis on technology, data science. We are white labeling our platforms. So that's the next part of the business because what I very strongly believe is that a successful business is one which can evolve and change itself every three to five years. And that's what we are always working to do. That, you know? Got it. And and now in, in FinTech, you know, in there's just a lot happening. And, and also oh, yeah. there's a lot of regulation that you need to navigate. So what kind of challenges did you guys encounter when, when you know, building the business, getting that business model together? I mean, what, what kind of challenges did you encounter? Yeah, so I remember when we started the company, there was no word as FinTech. So FinTech really started coming together sometime in 2012, 2013 kind of stuff. Uh, you know, uh, so we were one of the first guys and we used to go out and tell people, you know, and we didn't also had much of an idea because it was all fuzzy logic, you know, at that point of time. Uh, but we at least had some idea of, you know, how things will work. And we used to go out, talk to people. There were no APIs, no microservices, nothing. So it was pretty tough at one point of time because, you know, it was not mainstream. And most of the banks and other FIs were not taking us seriously at all. They were like, oh, yeah, these are some like, you know, guys, something will happen okay, you know, we'll see, we'll look into it, you know, kind of stuff. So nobody was very serious. So first two, three years were very frustrating in that sense. But also it taught us a lot that, you know, when, when big change comes, it always comes slowly initially and then it happens all of a sudden. 
So, so I think that was very really, uh, instructive to us that you have to stick around. You have to play the game. You have to have some patience, and you have to constantly keep moving forward. You cannot stop. You cannot get discouraged. And I think that was the biggest lesson we ever got. And to today also, we are just doing the same thing because you know, sometimes people will come, they will slam doors on our face. It happens a lot less now. But you know, the key thing is that we need to keep moving forward, and we don't need to lose our edge. I think that's the most important thing in business. Because once you start losing your edge, you know it is very difficult to come back and get that edge back. Yeah, absolutely. And talking about lessons, how how did I mean you were you were pointing to this before? I mean, you guys went through the through the financial crisis of two thousand and eight, and 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 how did you really how did you guys manage to to survive? Well, it was brutal. Uh, so I remember, you know, we had taken up an office here in Flatiron District. You know, uh, early two thousand eight. We thought we were going to expand quite a bit fast, so we took a 3,000 square feet office at that point of time. That was a big office for us. And then all of a sudden, in six months' time, you know, uh, we get financial crisis, and we had a few hundred thousand dollars in the bank account. And one of the one of the decisions we took at that point of time: what should we do next? Whether we should, you know, and we had like five employees, so we said, should we lay off these employees or should we, you know, continue and try to fight it out? And I think we took some very important decisions at that point of time. One was. We said we are not going to lay off any of our employees. We said we will take a salary cut. So I remember at that point of time not drawing out any salary for nine months, you know, and like, and just surviving on our salary or on our savings. And then we said we will keep investing in technology. And we also said at that point of time we took a big decision that you know we'll go fight it, you know, out, you know. So even if we don't survive, we'll still fight it out. We are not going to give it up. And I think looking back, that was the best three decisions we made. So we didn't lay off any employees. We didn't delay their salaries. We didn't, you know, uh, shy away from investing more money in technology. And we didn't give up. And I think by making some personal sacrifices, it also helped us, but it also helped us to grow as leaders and also gave us a lot of respect in our team members because they also saw that, you know, we have a commitment and a passion for something. And it is not just a fad for us that when the good times were there, we were okay, fine. And when the bad times came and then, you know, it also gave us a lot of ability and mental strength to go and fight it out. Because once you go through that kind of a time period, then nothing can come and unnerve you. Got it. Got it. And and there's a lot of people talking about a potential correction in 2019 or or 2020. I mean, do you have any thoughts on that? And, and perhaps, you know, for the people that are listening, how they could prepare uh, as best possible for it? Yeah. So I think one thing we learned from that whole crisis was that. We pay a lot of attention on risk management. So our losses in our you know, portfolios of billions of dollars is very low. So we keep very high reserves. You know, uh, So I think one of the key lessons that we learned from the great recession was that you need to be financially savvy and financially disciplined. You need to execute like maniac. You, know, you, can't, you cannot talk and not execute. That's not going to work for you. And the other thing is you need to have tremendous amount of passion because that's the thing that will carry you through good times and bad times. So in terms of 2019 or 2020 recession, everybody's expecting it. Nobody knows when it's going to come and, and what shape and form. But I think the key way you prepare for a recession is that, you know, there's a saying that if you sweat more in peace, you bleed less in war. So I think in last one year, you know, we have actually taken a lot of steps. We are investing a lot of money in risk management, data analytics keeping our portfolios really healthy, being a very profitable business, you know, not overextending ourselves in terms of our financial 
commitments. Like I will give you a great example. A lot of companies during good time, you know, will take very fancy offices. They will sign long-term leases. And when the bad time comes, that's the last thing they can get out of. And that creates a lot of financial stress for them. So I think, and also investing in the right places. So right now we are investing a lot of money in technology, data science, automation, AI, ML. And that's important because we feel that whenever the next recession comes, which nobody knows when it will really come, but we should be more ready, we should be more efficient, we should be more profitable because then we will be able to, you know, go through that crisis really well. And actually every crisis has an opportunity because a lot of your competitors who are weak, who are not focused, who don't have the passion, will actually go away. So survival is the most important thing during a recession, not growth. And if you survive, then you will grow on your own very rapidly after that. Got it, got it. And that's that's great, great, great advice there. And, and, and for you guys, at what point did you decide, hey, we're going to raise some money for this business. So, so for first three years, we ran the business from 2008 till 2010, end of 10, very frugally, you know, with our own money and we were reinvesting all the money. Then we started seeing some good growth and then some, you know, uh, and VCs were already approaching us even in 2008 prior to the crisis. And the best thing we did at that point of time was not to raise money because I, think if we had raised money at that point of time, then the crisis hit, then, you know, a lot of investors would have panicked and that would have, you know, forced us to do things that we didn't want to do. So not having external pressure during a crisis is the best thing to happen. Then sometime in 2011, as the company was growing, company was becoming bigger, you know, we were getting some attractive offers. So we thought, oh, that's a good time to raise money, add to a balance sheet. And also we, we had started dealing with a lot of our strategic partners at that point of time and also with banks. And they wanted to be more comfortable that we have more money on our balance sheet because they were doing more and more business with us. So that's when we raised our first round of capital because we thought that, because raising capital is also very important because in this day and age, a lot of entrepreneurs think that raising capital is the milestone that they're working for. While raising capital is only the start of the process. It's nothing more than, you know, okay, I get money, some money from someone, but now the pressure and the expectations to grow is even more. And I think the other key thing is that we, we always wanted to build a profitable business from unit economics perspective. We said whatever money we raise, we should always raise it to accelerate our growth, not to, you know, fund our losses. And we have seen so many times businesses which have potential, they lose a lot of money, then they raise a lot of money and then they just lose their mojo. And then in the end, they, they're not able to control their destiny and do anything. Right, right. So, so for example, in your guys' case, how much how much capital have you guys raised so far? So right now, you know, we have raised around nine and a half million dollars. So we haven't raised a lot of money, while we have got offers to raise tremendous amount of money over time. You know, uh, but we have been very frugal, very consistent in why we will raise money. And uh, now, you know, the good thing is that you know profitability in itself has gone into tens of millions of dollars a year. So I think now we are at a stage where we we are planning to raise more money, but we are raising it from a position of strength and also for an accelerated growth. Got it, got it. Because for example, like this year, like would you be able to kind of like share with us like what what kind of uh, numbers you're projecting? So from a revenue perspective, you know, we will be, we are aiming at around 
60 to 70 million dollars and from a profitability perspective around 15 to 20 million dollars i mean that's very impressive for the amount of money that you've raised yeah. so uh congratulations to you and and the team it's it's remarkable uh that's for sure so so i guess for example for the um for the for the business itself for the lending side did you how much how much did you raise as well because here you have obviously yes. the the money that you raised for the business and then also the money that you raised to be able to 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 do the loans exactly so on that side obviously we have raised a lot of money because that's a good sign if we raise more so till now you know we have raised almost uh, 400 million in actually and uh, we are now expanding it we are adding another 300 million in next one quarter because as our lending volumes are going up at a rapid pace and that's where you know we are we are expanding sheets and we are doing a lot of uh, you know different uh, structures that we are putting in place right got it got it because in terms of metrics how many companies say do you have right now as part of your ecosystem so you know we have two set of companies so we also provide every company with a virtual cfo platform where irrespective of the fact whether they get money or not they get you know these benchmarking services the ability to determine their cash flow you know, do things in a way which are cost-effective and smart for them. So that virtual CFO platform is used by almost 200,000 businesses. And from a lending ecosystem, we have around 25,000, you know, uh, companies that we have lent money to. And how many how many loans would you say that you're facilitating right now per month? So anywhere from, you know, 600 to 800 loans, you know. Wow. So... Uh... So what what would you say is the uh, total amount of funding that you have facilitated up until now? So more than two point two billion, you know, as of now. Wow, wow, that's a, that's certainly very very impressive, very impressive. So so in terms of, um, I mean, you're you're at the end of the day, you're building a marketplace, right? And uh, I think that marketplaces yeah. are tricky because it's like launching two companies at the same time. I mean, in a model like oh, yeah. yours, you have the business that you need to onboard, and then also whoever is is loaning the money. So, um, what what have you learned from from building a marketplace like like yours? I would say discipline. So, discipline is very important because you know in our business, from a lending aspect, I can lend as much money as I want and build short term revenues. But then, if the performance suffers, then the people who are lending money through the platform will lose their money, and that's what we don't want. So I think discipline is very important. The ability to manage both on growth as well as risk management is extremely important. You know, investing in technology, having that credibility also, you know, like if we say something, we do it kind of stuff. So I think irrespective of whatever investments we have to make. So I think it's a very important aspect that we need to take into account. When you're building a two-side marketplace, you need to have trust and confidence of both the both the both the participants, and both the participants should feel that they are getting the best deal out of it, and both should also feel that both of their interests we are protecting as if it is our interest. Got it. And and in terms of the the health of the marketplace itself, like how have you seen that, for example, like keeping the balance between the supply and the demand? Yeah, so I would say, uh, you know, demand is always there for credit. I think supply is something that you have to manage really well and also manage it at the right price, right kind of investors. And also, you know, uh, and from a demand side, you know, the key is that you have to have the right set of demand. So you cannot take a lot of business like like we don't take business through brokers and others. 
people we want to go either direct to the customers or with some of our corporate partners like paychecks and some of the other folks so the whole idea there is that you know how you support your customers is important but also how you fulfill their their demand you know in terms of uh, 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 whether you're giving them the right pricing right term right structures and also you're not putting them in a harm's way by even over lending them because in certain cases i've seen where companies have over lent to businesses businesses are not able to pay back and then everybody loses at the end of the day so i think we are trying to balance both the sides at any given point of time it's a very dynamic business the macroeconomic cycle really impacts us at any given point of time for both good and bad we are also very aware about it very cognizant about it that how do we balance it how do we create uh, that you know forward looking uh, stuff and how do we learn from different aspects of the market whether the credit markets interest rate market uh, demand in the small business space tax break you know, which has come up uh, during the trump administration how do we take it and how do we meld everything together got it got it so i guess uh, i guess for a business like yours like i i've seen that you know you've been very um i mean you've been everywhere you've been featured on the new york times on the wall street journal uh and 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 also you know there's like really good comments that that you provide and and certain predictions that that you talk about you know the um, the loans for small businesses so i wanted to ask you how do you see the the overall picture for small business loans and and what's the future ahead that you foresee so obviously compared to the crisis like we bring out a small business lending index every month which we started in january of 2011 and that clearly shows you know where the access to credit was for businesses and where it has now a lot i would say much uh, better picture lot of improvement i think the key yeah, thing or the biggest trend that we are now starting to see is the digitization so the businesses have to go digital the banks have to go digital the lenders have to go digital all the intermediaries have to go digital and those businesses which will be able to exploit uh, the power of digitization like how to apply online how to maintain their reviews online well how to conduct their own business well in an online environment will gain the most and a lot of other businesses who are not able to manage their online part of their business you know will will suffer so even a restaurant today typically you know the last 3 4 years you know they used to get hardly 3 4 5 percent of their orders online now it's almost 30 to 40 percent of their business has gone online so i think uh, every single industry sector is getting impacted by digital and every industry sector needs to prepare for being not only going digital but also managing their digital journey now and i think that's yeah. very important got it and what about the um the political climate like how do you think is this affecting small businesses so right now i think the trump administration has been very favorable to small businesses there has been lack of or i would say regulations have been rolled back you know uh, x break i think is one of the biggest benefits for businesses because if you see in this tax break it was for businesses not for individuals really and that has really spurred businesses to come back invest more money grow their businesses is more appetite for access to capital and with the interest rates being still at record low you know there's a lot of hunt for yield and that means that you know a lot of uh, you know capital sources are opening up in this space and this space the small business lending space is becoming more of an of a mainstream asset class from being an alternative asset class and i think that's the one big change that is happening as we see even 2 3 years back that wasn't the case so 
So I think more low cost money, long term permanent capital is starting to flow into this space, uh, which is non-bank money. Got it. Got it. And I and I've heard you talk about as well the the best places to be, right? As um as a small business and to operate yes. in. And I and I've seen that you said that New York City is the best city in America for small businesses. Why is this? So I think that's that's very interesting because I also debate about it that it's an expensive city. You know, there's a lot of regulation, lost of cost. But what we have seen now, you know, the businesses is moving away or the economic activity is moving away from hinterland to more into bigger cities every single day. And because of you know everything going online, you know, there's less of manufacturing, more of services and post services economy. And I think that's what's creating it, the dynamo impact of big cities being more attractive to more people. That means that more businesses will thrive. And as larger businesses get more concentrated in bigger cities, that also means that smaller businesses which support these larger businesses will also thrive more in places where, you know, there is a lot more, uh, you know, economic activity. The other thing that has happened is that it's very interesting is that any business today, whether small or big, needs to engage with more of the technology workers. Uh, and more and more and more of the technology workers are preferring to live, uh, you know, in in the cities. They are not suburb people. They are not people living in smaller towns anymore. And I think that's where you know the attractiveness of a bigger city, in spite of their higher cost, is actually increasing every single day. Got it. Got it. And by the way, I love New York City, so um, I'm a little bit biased, but uh, I I I would tend to agree that New York is. It's an unbelievable place, and it has come a long way as well on, on tech startups, right? Like ten years ago, there yeah. was uh, nothing like like what nothing. it is today. Yeah. So Rohit, I want to I want to ask you what I typically ask our guests. So if if you could go back to the past and give yourself advice before you were launching Biz to Credit, knowing what you know now, obviously, what would that business a piece of advice that you would give yourself, and why? I would say the piece of advice that I would give to myself would be that I looked at the power of technology at that point of time, but I still underestimated it. So I think if I go back and look, I should have invested more money in technology. I should have, you know, uh, invested more in the infrastructure and marketing piece of our business, which initially, you know, like any entrepreneur, we were trying to conserve money also and, you know, not very sure. Uh, while we did all that stuff, you know, we could have done with a greater speed, I would say. Uh, I think the other key thing would be, you know, how to predict the future. I think that's very important because uh, world is changing at such a rapid pace. So I think that sense of urgency was always there in me and my brother, but even having an increased sense of urgency. So now as the business grows, my sense of urgency and the urgency that I'm conveying to my team is has actually grown many fold times. Because I think that's key lessons that I've learned when I started the business into operator. And I think the most important lesson would be that when the markets really turned bad, while we didn't give up and we kept going on, you know, we should have doubled down even more. And I think that's a key lesson because if you can execute and you can double down more when markets are bad, the, the amount of growth that you will see during good times will be just extraordinary. Got it. And I agree with that. I mean, typically on times of contraction, when everyone is kind of like reducing the cost and be more cautious is where you have like the biggest potential uh, for for upside. So um, so I, I agree I agree with you on that. So 
So for the people that are listening, Rohit, what is the best way for them to reach out and say hi? So one is they can send me an email at info at bistrocred.com. I get all those emails. You know, uh, they can call me up. You know, my number is there on the uh, on my company directory. And, uh, and I pick up most of my phones on my own. Uh, and, and I think... Uh, that's the way. Then I also do a FinTech Friday every 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 fortnight. So a lot of people actually come back on LinkedIn to me, and uh, and that's I found it a very effective platform to communicate with a lot of people. Fantastic. Well, Rohit, it has been a pleasure to have you on the Dealmaker Show. Thank you so much. Thank you. If you like the show, make sure that you hit that subscribe button. If you could leave a review as well, that would be fantastic. And if you got any value either from this episode or from the show itself, share it with a friend. Perhaps they also appreciate it. So also remember that if you need any help, whether it is with your fundraising efforts or with selling your business, you can reach me at alejandro at panteraadvisors.com. You've reached the end of another episode of the Dealmakers podcast. For free resources and materials, head over to alejandrocremades.com. Thank you for listening and see you at the next episode.